Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with me, Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by Anna Gutt. Hi, Anna. Hi, Eyal. How are you doing? Excellent. It's so good to have you here. And as the custom goes, uh, please introduce us to an idea or concept that has been making your life better. Thank you so much for having me. And for those of uh, you listening to this podcast, uh, you can't see Eyal, but he's calling in from the back room of a public library in, from the kibbutz where he lives in Israel. And he's sitting in front of this beautiful double shelf of books. Um, and I have massive FOMO slash nostalgia uh, for, for public libraries right now. So it's also such an apt uh, kind of Zoom background, I think, for, uh, for a discussion around interinsular accent and my work. Definitely. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think most um, adults you know, um, ex- co- kind of continuously explore the question of how to live well, whether they do so consciously or whether just unconsciously through, you know, um, their preferences or their um, attempts at, at improving their lives. Um, one of the things that that seems to have proved to work for me, uh, and it was quite counterintuitive to me, so I kind of arrived at it late, was... Um, how to explain? I really think that understanding a little bit what kind of a person you are will be extremely generative for your life. I kind of understood this when I realized that the best way for me to figure out what I want is to look at what I do. So say I have unstructured time or I go on a holiday, I go on a walk, I go into a bookstore or a public library and I can pick any book I want or I can do anything that I want with my time. Um, what do you do with it? Um, and I do think that with, you know, self-honest, self-observation, a lot of things become really obvious. What are your actual preferences? What are, who are the people you really want to talk to? Do you really like your job? You know, do you really enjoy the book that you're, you said you enjoy? Um, and of course, I'm not including um pathological problems here and of course there are people who do things that they don't want to do etc etc but i think for most people at most times this is a good rule of thumb um and i think it increases at least for me it greatly increased my self-trust because i have a tendency like all hardworking people to see myself as super lazy um and um you know, I, now that I have been observing myself in a semi-detached way for a good while, um, I know that, no, actually, if you leave me alone for an hour, I will probably do something. Um, and, you know, uh, if you leave me alone without a book, I will probably think up something fun, you know, um, and that's, uh, that's, that's a good thing to know. And, and I wouldn't know that about myself without having, you know, given myself the opportunity of just unstructured free time. Um, And I think this leads to many interesting uh, questions. I really believe that a big um, mistake that we make in life in the West and in how, you know, what we expect from children and how we educate them is that we expect people to maybe at 18 or 21 or 23 to choose a life and then bend yourself to that life, right? We think that, oh, children have like natural intellectual aptitudes toward either creative thinking or mathematics or whatever, you know, seems to be their intellectual type. And then we kind of put them in that mold and expect them to somehow grow personality traits that will suddenly make that life choice, you know, um, happiness inducing or gratifying to them. Um, And I've come to believe that it's actually the other way around. You have to figure out what type of a person you are, what kind of life makes you happy. And then you choose your profession, you choose your discipline um, around that. And of course, it's kind of a combination of the two, but not allowing people to explore their types, um, I think is, um, it, it suggests a more 
kind of mechanical view of human nature than I think we actually have. Um, I think uh, whilst a lot of things, you know, from virtues to skills to, um, you know, positivity and optimism, a lot of things can be built and encouraged and improved upon, but there are certain like rhythmic elements to type um, from what, I, what time you like to wake up to um, what discourages you. Are you an athletic type of thinker uh, or doer? Are you, um, you know, more of a contemplative? Like we have these kind of basic types. Yeah. Um, and the happiest people I know just went ahead and chose a profession or a career for the type that they found themselves to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. I love it. I love it on so many levels. Um, it, and it is fascinating. You're right. And I've had a podcast before where I talked a lot about, um, uh, there's one that's supposed to be out uh, any day now about the power of stories and how we, for example, approach books in adolescence and read about other characters and decide to be like them, like try being in their shoes and see if, if we're like them. And then, of course, there are these projections from our environment that um, basically just tell us, you know, you should uh, really try to be the kind of person who works a lot at this like high paying job, whatever, um, to make a good life for yourself. And between all of these, it's it's actually hard to, to be um, looking at yourself sometimes and really recognizing Wait, this is who I am. Could I could I change who I am? Uh, yes. So people, like you say, they they push themselves in all sorts of ways into into different molds. But it comes at a cost, and it seems that being yourself in the most uh, kind of naive way, where you're not even questioning it, is the uh, the path of of least resistance. And it's it's not obvious at all that that we would actually recognize that that this is who we are because we get so much um so much backlash uh, just being who we are out in the world but eventually i think if you want to to live well you're right you need to take the path of least resistance and that means uh recognizing who you are what you like doing um and this is more likely than not going to take you on a path that's unorthodox to say the least um, and now I want to ask you, like, for you personally, uh, can you trace back this this sort of, of insight that you had? Was there a time in your life when you were not so much in touch with these parts of yourself and you tried to do it the, uh, the mainstream way or just following some other uh, almost character um, or anything like that? Interesting question. I mean, I, I do remember um, to, to kind of also go back to uh, to what you said, which I think is brilliant. Um, a lot of people don't a lot of people don't choose certain paths because they don't even know they exist, right? Like if you don't know that a certain type of job exists or can exist, for instance, some type of relationship, a certain place to live, then how would you move there? Why would you choose that for yourself? Um, I, I remember in my 20s, I worked in film and there was this um, very talented young um, film producer, woman that I worked with. Um, and, you know, it kind of made sense to us that, OK, she's a film producer. You know, she was very ambitious, extremely good organizational skills and knack for um, international work and relations. Um, but there was some kind of internal tension in how she approached her job. And, you know, next to people who were kind of born for this job, she was always a little bit the odd one out. Um, and, and I remember we started going to um, actual international film festivals. And for the first time, she met the film sales profession, that there is this, you know, class of people, very successful, brilliant film lovers, it's not an administrative job, who's, who go to festivals, connect, buy films, and it's a little bit like a film producer, but you're, you're really a little bit like the VC, right? You're not the founder. And, you know, she was immediately super close friends with all of them. It was a match made in heaven. And she kind of found out that this is a job and could get advice on it. And now that's her job and she's super happy. Um, and I, I remember seeing that, process unfold in front of my eyes and and then of course it got, gets you thinking 
I think for me, like there, there were two moments of, of kind of internal contradiction that were very generative for me. One was, um, I mean, it was just generally, um, I mean, I have a very, I have like this polarity. Um, I think, of course, everybody has it, but for me, it's very, very strongly manifest in my work that on the one hand, you know, I grew up in show business and I grew up around the stage and I was an athlete when I was in my teens. And I very deeply understand the kind of gold ratio of performance, right? When you wake up and in the morning, it's very administrative and you do emails and texts and whatever. And then in the afternoon, it gets more and more social and more and more people join in. And then in the evening, you have the kind of climax, which is the, the, the performance. And then you have the calm down and the after party, and then you go to sleep. Right. That's what an athlete would do. That's what any, anybody who works in, in film, for instance, or sorry, especially theater and music, but in, to some degree film uh, would do. Um, and I kind of this was formative enough for me um, to make me always quite unhappy when I would work in an office, which is more modeled on, you know, the factory. You go in the morning and you work, 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 then there's a lunch break and then you work, work, work and you go home or you go and get drunk if you're in London. Right. Um, and I was never happy with that. That's like not my daily rhythm. Um, I'm like a zombie in the morning. Don't talk to me. <laughs> and then I get more and more social. I, I, I'm very good. I, like I, I do writing and analytical stuff in the morning, but I just like to be alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. And then I get more and more social and kind of like able to deal with a lot of people as the day progresses. And then I need a kind of a calm down time afterwards, either alone or with other people. Um, but I also, so this is like one side of me that I think in many ways comes from how I grew up, or maybe there's also some hereditary aspect to it. I mean, there's a reason why both my parents went into show business. Maybe there's uh, grandparents even. So um, there is something to that. Uh, but I also have the kind of scholar side to me, um, like for instance, today, or, you know, in most, most mornings, I just, I'm very withdrawn and, um, and I can, I'm totally happy to spend a full week all by myself, not talking to anybody, um, just reading and thinking and writing. Um, and, and to me, you know, a lot of my career was about understanding and finding structures where this duality exists, you know, in the life of a professor or a priest or a rabbi, you know, it's, it's there, right? Um, and, and that was helpful for me kind of to forget about the constraints of today's world and, and look at all of the, the different ways people live and find good kind of models, um, models to it. Um, the, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, so it's, it's, it sounds that you're, that you're lucky in a way, because you, you, you've never been uh, in, in much conflict about like, it's good that you recognize it about yourself. I'm thinking about now thinking about society at large we're probably doing quite poorly when it comes to that, like allowing people to uh, really explore themselves as a, as a person, as what you say, even these biological functions of a circadian clock and all that play with that because we have the very strict um, schedule day to day in school. And then it basically goes on and anything who does something outside of this is, is a little bit of an outsider, at least to a certain degree. And it's, it's interesting. Like I'm trying to think in Israel, we have this tradition almost that when people get out of the mandatory army service, they go for at least half a year somewhere. It's usually India or South America uh, to find themselves. Right now. I'm not sure it, it, it's really that kind of finding yourself that they're doing. It's mainly uh, drug assisted, but um, still, I wonder if this, if this should be a, a, a thing for everyone where there is, um, a period of time where you are let, uh, where you are just by yourself, figuring out stuff and seeing yourself and where society doesn't intrude and comes in and says, well, you need to do this, 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 and push you into doing these things. And I wonder if there's no room to have something like that, or how do we create um, an ethos in society that actually um, endorses people's attempts to to find themselves in that way and get to know themselves? Like it seems to be seems to be rare, doesn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I. Um... 
I've come to greatly value crises. And I think that I, I don't really know many people who have found, if not themselves, but a strong, sure road towards you know, self-honesty and self-exploration without, without some kind of a crisis. Hmm. Um, so like the Dantean dark forest here applies. And I think you need to, there is something to starting life with juvenile assumptions and then find yourself facing the wall and get disappointed and have, you know, to have to recalibrate, to realize that you were wrong about yourself and, you know, I mean, I, I'm not talking about a crisis as something super dramatic, but at least a couple of months when you don't know what you will be doing um, and that you were proven wrong. Um, I think all of the creative good stuff, all of the pure stuff comes from, from those moments. Um, I think it's extremely rare and only, you know, as a path only available to very, very few people to have figured it out without experience. So my, like I definitely um, came to where I am today through a myriad of crises and I took very big financial and social risks to um, at least have, you know, a part of the freedom that I think I should in this life. Um, you know, it's, it was not really handed to me, uh, but I didn't know I wanted it. Um, at first I was, you know, I was living within constraints um, imposed upon myself from my environment. And I saw that my job was to kind of make the most out of it. And when I was not able to and would feel depressed, I thought, well, that's how life is. You know, you life is suffering. And, that, you know, at some moment, a little door opens, um, however you arrive there. And you realize that, no, actually, you can totally step out of that there. there. There is a price. You know, it's not, it's, you know, you can't like the big, the good, big, good things in life are difficult, um, but that you should. Um, and when you step out and you, you realize that lives are made and worlds are built um, and that there is a strong artistic element to life where you can, with relatively little resistance, create things that are good for you. Um, I think that's a, that's a really, really big moment in life. So I, I think we need, we need a, you know, a way to talk about life that is more allowing for crises, that is more allowing for people exploring themselves, um, not necessarily after the army service, but maybe at 35 or 65, whenever you want to, whenever you feel like you need to change, um, and having, um, for instance, you know, we have this weird thing in the West when we think that difficult periods last for six months. And then if your friend is still a little bit uncertain after six months, then you're like, there's something wrong with you, you know. Yeah, it's pathological. Yeah. Pathological, I don't know what to say to you. And in my experience, like transition periods last three to seven years or 15. Uh, maybe all of life is a transition period, I don't know. But like having the... Um, being okay with that, um, I think to me, I, I mean, I don't have a, you know, recipe here, but, but just understanding that, you know, that the, the road toward clarity is, you know, has its own challenges. I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I would encourage everybody to, um, to be okay with that. Yeah. I, I think it's no coincidence that, um, on the one hand, it's it's a fact that our brain develops as, as late as 24, right? Years of age. When we reach 24, that's maybe when things are, are kind of uh, stabilizing in our frontal lobes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, a lot of society tries to get us to do all the things that it wants before we actually get to that age, right? So whether it's send you to the army or send you to college to make you a good citizen in, in whatever way they see, they see it. Um, but so I don't think it's a coincidence. One, one thing that you uh, kind of mentioned is really interesting to me. It's how would we demarcate between actually knowing ourselves or telling ourselves that we are the problem because you touched it and 
This is a really big issue. I think for me, for anyone, it's just so tempting to, to look at yourself and see that, that you are the problem because everyone around you seems to be doing okay with the rules that, that we're giving, or at least most people seem to be doing well. And you might be, you might be in the job you don't like for way too long and you might get depressed and like you said, uh, life is suffering or these are the rules and I'm, I'm just not fitting. And how do you give yourself, how do you empower yourself to come to a decision that you actually trust with authority that no, you know, part of it is you and you'll do whatever you can to, to change and be, and be looking at the half glass full and so on. But there are also some things that are not perfect out there that you have control over. And how do you go about, um, starting to change them in little ways. That's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I love, you know, this whole idea that, you know, there is a room full of people and then one person has this speech bubble over their head that I am so weird and working so hard at fitting in and everybody else is fine. And then the next person also has this speech bubble. <laughs> right. and everybody, everybody thinks, right? Everybody thinks that they are weird. They are the exception. And in a way we are, right? It's extremely hard when you look really close at people, it's very hard to really generalize. Um, um, I mean, for me, I, I think for me, inter-intellect um, and starting this journey of, of, of um, you know, this movement, this company, this organization was extremely um, kind of educational in this sense, because it made me understand myself in a, at a different level than before. And it was kind of about uh, what you were mentioning, like, am I the source of a problem or am I the solution, right? Um, I think up to, when I first started entertaining the idea of doing this uh, when I was 30, and then I really only got down to it 33, 32, 33. So there was like a, um, an incubation period. Um, and up to that point, I always, I always looked at things that I'm, I'm lacking, right? And I felt that the things that I lack or thought I lacked um, were the constraints, right? I saw myself as this person who, you know, lives in Budapest and has these parents and has this social class and has this sets set, set, set of interests, these personal relationships, physical attributes. And I kind of saw that that was fixed. Um, and for me, actually, turning 30 was really interesting because I, when I turned 30, I realized that I only really had the script in my head up to 30 for a woman. And then, you know, in where I grew up, when you turned 30, a woman kind of disappears either into the into a family or some other identity. Mm. Suddenly I was there without this exoskeleton of a scenario of what I should be doing. And I realized, like, oh, I can do anything like my life really starts now. Um, but I really, up to that point, thought that, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not a math person. I'm not tall enough. I don't speak German. Like, whatever. No, 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 no. And at the end, I did very little. Or I felt I was doing very little. Um, actually, I, I went back home uh, to Budapest a couple of weeks ago and packed out old boxes and, and found this completely different person based on the these archaeological findings that I, I remember, <laughs> right? How I saw myself. I was absolutely hyperactive. Apparently, um, I saw myself as very lazy um, at the time. But um, I remember the 2016, 2015, 2016 political crisis, which kind of coincided with a personal crisis for me. Um, and it made me think about it. I felt a little bit like what I think about myself suddenly doesn't matter because there is a like there is a need in the world now and I have to employ myself like a soldier to help with this thing because other people need help and everybody has to help, not just me. Um, and so I kind of like suspended this individual little cage into which I put myself. Um, and I, that was the first time when I sat down and I started looking at my CV and my, my studies, my interests, my, my uh, strengths from a very utilitarian angle. Like, what can I do? Like, what... Not, not what I can't do, but what I can do. Like almost like a list, like taking stock. And I was like, I will find something to do in the world that what I can do enables me to do. Like let, let my skills or my experiences up to now um, choose the path for me. And this is kind of how, you know, of course there's a lot of taste involved and, and, 
random things a lot you know it's not not super simple and not linear but that was how i kind of went into what i'm doing now um and you know to me that's um i it was very necessary but i also think that i couldn't have really done it much earlier because simply i didn't have enough data based on which to make a relatively objective almost ikigai type of decision that okay almost like you look at yourself almost like you were someone else like if there is this girl like where would i put her like you have this monopoly game of life right like here's mm -hmm. al you're like the little or the little like yellow dangling man from google maps <laughs> and all the streets light up with the blue and you're like where should we put him um and i think after a certain amount of information has been amassed about yourself, you kind of know. Um, and I, I think it's good to sometimes like step out from your Google Maps and just look at it uh, from, from the perspective. Yeah, I uh, it resonates with me a lot. I also had a, a, a turning 30 or 31 or whatever around that time was also a, a major point because I think First of all, the, the fact that we need experience is, is definitely worth emphasizing that. And there is such almost, you know, the youth is, is such a, a reverent thing. Like people look at it like as long as you're not uh, young anymore, it's, you know, it's downhill from here. And actually, if you look at it, you know, most successful published authors did not write their first good book before 35. So there's a lot to say for uh, for experience. And I think a lot can be done on the theoretical side in terms of I do dialectic with people. There are a lot of things you can kind of put um, put in place in your head before. But I think in the end, you're right. You need the experience. You need to see what actually forms patterns and not just because you can you can make yourself do all sorts of things. But after a while, when you when you when you're more a little bit more settled uh, mentally, then you see that some things come more more easily than than others. And I think that's a that's a really good point. And I really resonate with that. For me, I can trace the same way. You know, this podcast started because and also took about a year and a half to incubate. But it started basically because I was actually looking at what I like doing, which is talking with people. Initially, I started writing a book and it took me a few months to realize I'm not the kind of person who sits alone in a room. It's it's not me. I need the company. Um, and also listening to podcasters and really appreciating them and thinking, well, I could be on Sam Harris's podcast. Like I could hold a conversation with him. I know he's a genius, but um, you know, basically his only advantage over me is that he comes from this like West Coast elite, you know, in the US. So I'll just have to do it without the privilege of belonging to, to academia or Hollywood or anything like that. Um, but this is something I could do and believe in myself. And like you say, stop looking at the, at the disadvantages you have and start looking at all the advantages you have, which again, by 30, you have a pretty good idea about what it is that's unique about in, in your understanding and your skills. Because if you look at it, now you have the, the overview that shows you, well, you know, all the books that I've read, other people read, uh, have read as well, but none of them read the same set of books as me. And none of the people around you have uh, the same thoughts and the same uh, fortes. And that's uh, really worth pursuing. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you actually bringing this to light because this is not something that I've, I've thought about a lot, how important it is to, to get in touch with, with who you are. Are there other aspects that, um, that you kind of more specifically looked at yourself and said, oh, this is a parameter that, that I now know myself um, to be X, Y, Z in that parameter. Like you mentioned sleep cycles, for example, or um, how gregarious you are throughout the day or social. Um, yeah, what are some parameters that you have found I'm interested? It's kind of, it's hard to verbalize, but I think everybody has their unique combination of 
you know, what makes you, what energizes you, what drains you, what is the way in which you like to be social. I think it's, you know, calling people introverted, extroverted, or just, I don't know, MBTI, big five categories is a little bit of a simplification. Um, of course, it also changes. Um, but um, I don't know, for me, for instance, like I, on most days, don't like to work in the same space as other people. So I, I do, I, I have a, a spot in a co-working space in Brussels, for instance, when I'm in New York, um, I often, you know, work um, from somebody's office and there are other people, but it's not a kind of sitting close together, open floor office kind of thing. Um, I don't necessarily mind if there is someone else in the space, but I don't, I like doing meetings, but I don't like to be distracted, for instance, um, to the degree that I literally want to be alone in a room <laughs> for like big chunks of time. Uh, I know people who go insane if they have to be alone in a room for, for a longer period of time. Um, and this is something that I just had come to understand about myself. I can, you can, I don't know, go into, um, I could pathologize it and say that, I don't know, my childhood nursery was too far from the living room or whatever. And that's <laughs> or I can just say like, no, because, you know, there were other people in that apartment and they don't have this. So this is kind of how I am as a person. And that's fine. And instead of, you know, um, trying to bend it, I, um, I you know, ended up with a business where most of my team um, are uh, remote um, and we are perfectly happy, uh, you know, keeping in touch on the internet. So this is one, one of the, the things that I would, I would bring up. The other thing is really interest-based. Michael Nielsen, the physicist, has this idea, I think it was him, that everybody all, all through their lives, we all, we all just have one idea. And we search for an answer for that one question through a variety of different things. And even if you look at an extremely varied career of somebody who, you know, was this and then that and then went into this and that, it's really, they were pursuing one bunny, right? And it's, I mean, I kind of know what it is for me. It's very hard to, you know, verbalize it, but you kind of know. Um, and so, so for me, you know, building a life that focuses on that question, both during the day and when I'm not working and actually work versus non-work is not the distinction that even like touches this idea, right? It's more like uh, something that is always with you. Um, to me, that was very, very important. I, um, I think this is why, this is why I left film, uh, which, which had a, a very high social cost to me. Uh, film is a highly coveted, strange profession um that if you if you leave leave it willingly it's a little bit like divorcing the hottest guy in the neighborhood mm. nobody will understand and everybody will think you're weird and we all want him why don't you right. um but it was really not good for me and i i uh still mostly have i think quite negative memories of my time in that quote-unquote dream world uh which is an other um Interesting. Tori Amos has this great song, Another Girl's Paradise. And I often think of that song of how many times, how many situations you have to get in that are other people's paradises. And then for you to understand that, you know what? I don't actually like this. And then, then there are super small things happening that are so meaningful to me. Approval from a person I respect, um, small things in interintellect a beautiful idea, a beautiful piece of text uh, from somebody that I, 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 you know, hold in high regard. And to me, those are the moments of great success, whereas maybe for someone else that would mean nothing. Um, and that's fine. Yeah. I, again, I really like the idea of, of the one thing we're, we're actually trying to, to get at time and time again. And hopefully you know, we have the powers to, to get up and try again. If we, if we bet on some career that we don't like, it's not that easy to divorce it, as you say, especially if it's not, especially if it's a socially, um, 
if it's held on a pedestal in some way. Um, yeah, I really respect, for example, um, Ashley Barty, the tennis player who is at 25 now. She spent, what, over 100 weeks being number one in the world, and now she just walks away from it at 25. So she beat us. She, she's not even 30, but she's like, this is not what is actually good for me, so I'm going to go away, you know, and this is raising eye, eyebrows for how do you do that? You know, you could have made millions more for simply playing a game, you know, but they don't think about the constant travel and being alone on the road and and so on. So I think she's a good example for someone who's, who's doing um, good unto themselves. And Personally, it's really interesting because it, it reminds me the day that I enrolled in, in the, uh, to the tour guiding course and I already knew it wouldn't be hard for me because my dad is a tour guide. I have extensive knowledge of Israel. I have really good memory. I knew it wouldn't be a problem for me to finish it. I knew it, I would make a good tour guide because, because of all these things and because of being just loving to, to meet people. But on the first day when I enrolled and I could already envision me myself even rising to the top of the profession in terms of doing the, the more boutique um, tours with, with um, more wealthy families and so on, I knew it wasn't the, the thing, you know? So that's what it makes me think about. And it's really interesting because I did have to think, why is it not my thing? It has good pay. Uh, I do meet people. I do do that. But then I realized because I think the 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 end the the telos of the whole thing of the tour in Israel is is to have fun, and I'm more of a person who would like to have the deep felt conversations, like heart to heart conversations. And as much as I'm going to have these, and you can I mean, have those tours in Israel. I mean, <laughs> I've been on tours in Israel that included some very and <laughs> very troubling conversations. I mean, you have a couple of places there where you could have them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, you know, overall, the tourists come to have fun, not, not necessarily meet the tour guide and have these heart to heart um, conversations. And it's really interesting. Then I had to realize, well, I probably did this because I'm still playing a little bit to the tune of what society feeds me, because this is a good paying job and I can do it easily. It comes easy for me. Um, so I did that, but I always knew this wasn't the end. So when COVID hit and I didn't have work, it was kind of speaking of crises, you know, it was kind of a no brainer for me to, okay, I'm not going to get any job. I, I, I can just to pay the bills, but I'm going to chase something that's more fulfilling. Um, and, and this is what I did. And I'm, I'm happy that I did that. And again, you know, the podcast, as far as I can tell, I, I'm going to do it for a long time, but who knows, I might be able to, um, to further tinker with, uh, with the whole, uh, creation space that I'm using to, to even, uh, better suit my, my talents and wishes. And do we, do we know now what is our one thing, uh, I'm not sure yet. Do you? I, I do know what my one thing is, um, but I don't think that I will have necessarily one. I mean, I have had already multiple different ways uh, to explore it. And I think that we'll, we'll continue. I do think that I found kind of my one job uh, within Dream Intellect, um, where I think my skills are best put to use. But there are other things that I I, I, I want to do um, throughout my life. But I, I wanted to go back to this uh, thing you raised, uh, the question you raised around, you know, walking away from professional tennis, for instance. I have Andrea Gass's uh, autobiography open behind me where he mm -hmm. uh, very openly talks about how much he hated tennis. Um, but he did not walk away, right? Um, because I think we discussed um, this at uh, one of the interns excellence that I hosted uh, which was uh, Bernard Williams's point about, you know, the post-impressionist painter Gauguin and how he, uh, you know, he walked away from his life um, in France, uh, left his children and his wife um, and moved to Tahiti to paint uh, naked local women with fruits um, and became very successful with it. Um, and Williams is, um, was a, you know, Williams, who uh, was a wonderful um, English um, uh, moral philosopher, um, his point, um, you know, is that we would, um, you know, assess Gauguin's um, betrayal or abandonment of his uh, family and his friends and his country 
um, if he had not succeeded, uh, it would be very, very different, right? So we we have this narrative of his quitting his life and starting a second life that kind of made a giant um, out of him in, in the history of art. Um, if he had just gone to Tahiti, uh, painted terrible canvases and died very quickly or returned to France, then he would just be this jerk who left his family. And, you know, um, yeah. and so I think that that's interesting. And, you know, whenever, whenever we restart, I mean, I have restarted my life multiple times. And I think whenever we restart a life, we need to ask ourselves, how much success do I uh, expect from the next phase? Um, do I do this because I tried traditional success and I don't like it? Whether that success is status or money or having a nice suit, um, having a nice, you know, business card, whatever, you know, that the first phase was, um, how important it is that the second attempt or the third attempt uh, brings uh, traditional success. Uh, because I think people do evaluate both themselves and each other um, based on the perceived results. Um, so just kind of as a as a parenthesis there. Yeah. So you, you now you have me uh, imagining again, telling his family that he's going to Tahiti because he loves naked women and they're saying, okay, that's and fruit and it's like oh well okay <laughs> but this was just who he was so he went to pursue it um yeah definitely it's 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 so and true we're all the happier i love gogan don't get me wrong it's my favorite <laughs> my favorite painting uh it's this canvas um um you know uh with the with the nevermore bird um exploring our origins and our current states and our futures um uh, but i also know that you know there are countless artists who just like skedaddle and leave their kids behind and we never hear from them ever again um and i do think that you know um, there's a difference between just quitting and restarting if you're quitting you better be restarting something um yeah that's yeah that's a really interesting idea definitely i mean how many people just quit and and never um never really I don't know it's if if they ever come back. I don't I don't know if restarting yourself, but somewhere, you know, your kids that you left are, are still left behind. You know, to to Gauguin's family, he's still probably his his success never uh, mattered much anymore. Yeah, probably for his kids. It's like I don't care. Like yeah. you know, I don't care about dad's paintings. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, these are the trade offs, and 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 as I said, you know, at the beginning of our conversation no no crisis is without um some kind of social cost because every time you change you have to inform people of it some people will not like the change um i do think that you can be extremely um careful and and you know um personable about communicating your changes. And I, I know people who have been able to manage these very, very well, but you have to manage it. Yeah, I, I remember one bizarre incident where, so as soon as my army service finished, I went to uh, Georgia, the US state, into this homestead that's off the grid, did not talk to anybody. For two months for my family, they were ready to send the consulate in because I just sent this short email okay i made it whatever so all was, your friends were doing drugs in peru and then you went to georgia to a home yeah to work work my ass off on, on oh my god yeah and i literally vanished off the face of the earth for for everyone in israel yeah. and yeah. in just the matter of two months you know i did not speak hebrew for two months and this is my native language that i've been using all my life i remember picking up the phone and talking to my dad after over two months in Georgia. And here I am talking and um, I'm messing up even the genders in Hebrew. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> bizarre. And I just was so incoherent and I already had like a, a, an accent, you know, not a perfect American accent. I still don't, but I had an accent. And so I changed so much in such a, a short period of time. And then in April, my childhood friends came to the States to catch up with me because we were going on a road trip. And here I am seeing them and they're talking with me 
And I recognize that they're not talking with me. They're talking with the person who they knew in Israel, you know, but I, I, I really changed a lot. Um, and it was just this bizarre experience when you realize that you're not seen for what you are now. And all the all, you know, they expect you to just be in the same niche that you've inhabited since they've known you since you're uh, zero, you know. Um, so it's it's really interesting. And that that did feel like a, a social cost. And I feel like some of these things are uh, irreparable, basically. You, you never some people like our parents are very hard to convince that we've changed, you know, even though you can come back and and act different and you have to like pull them and say, oh, don't you see that I've changed? And it's really interesting how this works. Uh, yeah, I mean, every time you change, you make everybody around you change as well. And not everybody will like that. Um, I love uh, Toby Shorin's um uh, the writer has this line that my friend Aaron Lewis often quotes that comes so close to me that we both change. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think when people are already close to you, um, you know, there can be, it's an interesting thing that in many ways, it seems to be the, the main responsibility of the person changing to manage the transition for everybody else around you. Um, and when it's, you know, a, a change that you didn't, you know, um, consciously seek out, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, the responsibility feels a little bit different uh, from when you might be stopping yourself from transformation um, because you're worried about the management side of it. Um, yeah, and it also it also brings up a point, you know, in the in the closest relationships that we have when we choose a, a partner, like a long term partner, or when we have a child, you know, the 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 wish is the wishful thinking is that you know you're only going to to take the good things from this person and incorporate in yourself, and you're only going to give them your your best side. And of course, that's just not the truth, right? When you mingle, you mingle good and bad and all. Um, and of course, we we try to change, but you need to. Um, and this is also really hard because sometimes this can seem like an excuse saying, oh, I understand myself. I'm this kind of person. This is how it is for me. Uh, the other person and you for them need to understand that um, it could be true. Like you might not get your way with every trait uh, that they have that, that might not change to your liking. And accepting it with other people. So it's interesting to think with the whole process of understanding yourself, how we're dealing with that when it happens in, in people close to us, because it's, it's easy to, to, um, to know ourselves and to know what's best for us, but we need to be extremely tolerant with other people as they discover what is um, good for them. Because again, we might be on the, on the side that's, that's being left even. Yeah, and I think this is where um, the benefits of, you know, online communities, but also just solitary contemplation come into play. Because, I mean, I, I'm sure that you've noticed this um, when it comes to the people that have changed around you in the, say, recently, that they usually tell you about it a little bit late, right? People never say like, oh, from tomorrow onward, I will do X, Y, Z. People usually say like, oh, actually, you know, this person and I have been in a relationship for a while, or, oh, I wrote this book about physics and I'm going to be try to get a publisher. Like people like wait a little bit before telling other people about stuff, um, in, you know, fear of failure, of course, but also like you don't want to keep managing and, and managing again if it doesn't work out or if it ends. Um, and so I think, you know, seeking out places where you can experiment with yourself and, and observe yourself and grow into the new versions of yourself before the interference of the people that you might need to manage, whether this um, space of exploration is your own apartment when you're alone or the public library in your kibbutz, or it's um, an online community uh, where you're kind of away from the eyes of everybody else who knows you. I really encourage uh, people to seek these out. Uh, the internet is a marvelous place for uh, both solitary research and, 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 and community uh life um so i just would encourage everybody to uh to go and make the most out of it 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one last question would be for me to you would be, um, what are some techniques that you've encountered? Is it just um, kind of moments of insight that where you say, oh, I think, you know, this thing that I'm thinking about myself now or how I'm feeling is, is the real me, like I understand myself better and I'm going to make my choices accordingly? Or did you engage in some more structured ways? I don't know if it's anything like, like meditation or other techniques that have helped you understand yourself better. So maybe because I do meditate but and I do go on like long, thoughtful runs and I do all the cliche things that other people do. Um, but my favorite method <laughs> somehow for like coming up with things is like, I have this thing where I walk up and down in my apartment for hours and hours and hours to think I'm a very peripatetic thinker. <laughs> and for me, combining walking and thinking is maybe that's my way of meditation because I uh, have too much energy, but uh, to me, that's, uh, that has been fabulous. I also, so one thing that I, learned when I was you know writing for film and, and theater is the value of saying things out loud to yourself so you know what people write dialogue uh, they tend to actually like speak to themselves right because you have to hear mm. sort of things how, how it sounds um, just for the kind of you know organic motor side of speech you know it's of a different speed than when you read um, and you need to hear hear that. Some people record themselves even. Um, and I think that works for ideas as well. Um, we have a we have a bigger almost biochemical reaction to falsitude when we say things or hear hear things. So mm. if you try to construct a sentence and say it out loud and it's not fully true, um, I think it's more clear in speech than in writing. So if people find things about themselves or have a good idea i think if you're alone or just you speak it into your phone just have a voice trace of that idea i think that's um i found it ridiculously helpful wow. well, you will look like an idiot so like don't do it in front of other people but uh, <laughs> you know or if you do just pretend you're an actor and you're rehearsing something, you know, there are, there are professions where it's okay to speak to yourself. Yes. This is what I like. Actionable advice on this podcast. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Anna, I'd love, I'd love for you to, um, to tell listeners uh, what you're up to and where your thoughts and where it can be found online. Oh, well, I am the founder and CEO of Interintellect, where you're a host and attendee and community member, um, AL, um, yeah, you can find us uh, at interintellect.com uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can also email me at Anna at interintellect.com, Anna with two N's. Um, and yeah, join the conversation. Uh, the more we are, the, the better it is. Yes, I can testify that uh, it really has changed my life because I'm here in my uh, small kibbutz, which is like a small village community with not everyone being as intellectually curious as I am, not to denigrate them, but this is this is reality. And just finding online like-minded people who are willing to discuss a variety of topics and with a diversity of interests has been uh, amazing. So yeah, definitely check it out if you haven't already. And Anna, thank you so, so much for uh, making the time and I'll let you um, get back to running the world again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This is my little, little slice of the world. Um, and I, I will look forward to uh, hearing this episode. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you.